before we get into this passage, for those of you who are familiar with this story and are confused, think that maybe Daryl misread uh, that the, the daughter's name was Herodias. No, uh, Daryl read the, the verse as, as written, as, a, as translated. Uh, most of our uh, English translations will translate that this is the daughter of Herodias who danced for King Herod and his guests. Um, it has to do with a variant um, of, a, of a Greek um, uh, possessive pronoun. If you're really interested in that, come, we'll talk about it after the service. Um, most of uh, translations will say that this is the daughter of Herodias, uh, the wife of Herod who danced before the guests, and that's consistent with the account in Matthew chapter 14. We don't actually, uh, are we not actually given the name of the daughter uh, in, in the New Testament, but um, extra biblical sources name her as Salome, the daughter of Herodias, um, who later on went, to, went on to marry um, another uh, half-brother of Herod, uh, Philip the Tetrarch. This gets really confusing really quick, so we'll, we'll make some sense out of it. Um, this is the story, really, of two very, very different men. Um, Herod, or King Herod, on one hand, and John, or John the Baptist, on the other. And we'll do a little bit of comparing and contrasting, seeing what Scripture has to teach us about these two men. Uh, this particular Herod is, um, is Herod Antipas. Uh, there are uh, several different Herods mentioned in the Bible. They are all part of the Herodian dynasty, uh, started by a man named Herod, later called Herod the Great. And he had um, 10 wives and multiple children, and uh, his name Herod is, is used also uh, to apply to, to many of his children and other descendants, sort of like a title or a family name. So it gets kind of confusing. And I hate to start out a, a message with, uh, with confusion, but let's, let's get it messy and then let's sort it out. Um, the Herodian dynasty started by Herod the Great was founded not, it had no connection with the Davidic king, kingdom of the Old Testament. It was founded on political power through uh, alliance with Rome. Herod the Great made alliance with the Roman overseers and that's where he derived his power. Herod actually was not Jewish by descent. His father was an Idumean, uh, an Edomite uh, from uh, the line of Esau, and um, his mother was actually an Arab. But he was raised uh, in the Jewish tradition, although was not exactly a faithful Jew. Uh, as I mentioned before, he had multiple wives, multiple children. His uh, family life and... Um, and the life of his descendants was characterized by continual intrigue, multiple assassinations. He had at least one of his wives and three of his sons uh, killed, executed. Uh, the other Herods in the Bible, just to help uh, sort things out a little bit, Herod the Great, I've mentioned, was the Herod who tried to kill baby Jesus. And then, uh, um, then he leaves the picture of the Bible. Herod Antipas, who we're talking about here, was one of his sons. He is the one who killed John the Baptist. And then later, uh, when Pilate is, uh, is questioning Jesus at Jesus' trial, he sends him to Herod Antipas for questioning. And then, and then Herod sends him back. That's the same Herod Antipas. Uh, there's a third Herod who appears in the book of Acts. 
uh, Herod Agrippa I, who is actually the nephew of Herod Antipas, of this Herod, and the, the brother of Herodias, uh, Herod Antipas's wife. You got that straight? Have I confused you yet? Okay. Um, you, you can see it on Netflix, I'm sure. Um, uh, Herod Agrippa I was the Herod who killed the Apostle James and put uh, the Apostle Peter in prison. Uh, and then it's uh, described that he died abruptly as a punishment from God. And then the last Herod who plays a prominent role in the New Testament is the son of Herod Agrippa I, Herod Agrippa II, who is just known in the book of Acts as Agrippa. And he heard Paul's defense before Festus. Now, there are other Herods and descendants of Herod who are mentioned here and there, but these are the four main ones. You got it? Everyone straight? Okay. Okay, so we're going to focus on Herod Antipas, who is the subject of this passage. Uh, he was called a king here, but he actually wasn't a king. When Herod the Great died, his will divided his kingdom into four parts. And um, Herod Antipas, this Herod, got one part, which included uh, Galilee. Uh, now, that really rankled Herod Antipas uh, because the Romans called him a tetrarch, which means like a, a quarter of a king. There's, there's nothing worse than calling someone a, a quarter of something. Um, and so, really, his entire uh, adult life, he was trying to get the Romans to name him as king. And um, he uh, got so intent on that that um, uh, eventually... The Roman emperor uh, just said, I'm, I'm fed up with you, um, and he banished him uh, to Gaul, and his, his quarter of the kingdom was given to someone else. Um, Herodias, who is mentioned here, uh, was actually his niece. Um, she was the daughter of one of his half-brothers, one of his older half-brothers, and Herod the Great her grandfather actually married her to a, another of Herod Antipas's uh, half-brothers, uh, an older half-brother named Philip. Now, this is confusing because Herod Antipas had two half-brothers named Philip, okay? This Philip, uh, who Herodias was married off to, uh, never got to rule over anything. Um, Herod the Great got upset with his mother, and said, your son is not going to rule over anything. And so Herodias found herself married to the, to the one guy who didn't have a, a part of the kingdom. And she wasn't very happy with that. So she and Herod Antipas um, uh, decided that she would divorce Philip and, and, marry, and marry him. Uh, but that wasn't uh, proper, according to Jewish law, uh, to marry your brother's wife. And John the Baptist called it out. Again, I said it's confusing because there is a younger half-brother of Herod Antipas who um, was actually another tetrarch. He had a, a quarter of the kingdom. Um, and he eventually marries uh, Herodias's daughter, Salome. So if that's not confusing enough for you, you know, come see me afterwards. Um, in uh, the Gospel of Luke... Uh, we learn more about Herod Antipas's interactions with Jesus, and they were sort of an ambivalent relationship. Uh, Herod really wanted to see Jesus after he heard about him, at, and then later he wants to kill him. 
Um, uh, when Pilate sends uh, Jesus to Herod at his trial, Herod's initially glad to see him, and then when Jesus won't ask any, answer any of his questions and he won't perform any miracles for him, he treats him with contempt. He has this sort of off-and-on relationship with, uh, with Jesus. Um, his character, I guess, can... I'd like to tell a little bit of a story that has nothing to do with Herod directly, uh, but maybe share a little bit about the character of this man. Um, in 1984, through a sort of strange series of events, I ended up meeting um, President Mobutu Sese Seko of uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo, which was called Zaire at that time. Now, those of you who are not really up on your 20th century African history, uh, Mobutu Sese Seko was sort of one of the premier strongmen of Africa. Uh, he took power in 1965 in a bloodless but military coup, and he reigned as dictator over that nation, uh, that mineral-rich, resource-rich nation, for 32 years, and uh, uh, finally was exiled and died. Uh, during that time, he uh, controlled basically everything in the country. The national uh, philosophy was called Mobutuism, and it had to do with his basic political uh, philosophy, but also it took on religious characteristics as well. Uh, especially in the early 70s, um, some of his followers really tried to replace reverence for Mobutu uh, for Christianity. And um, he was oftentimes heralded as the African Messiah, even though he clearly was not. Um, my family lived in Kinshasa, the capital of then Zaire, in the early 70s. And remember, when his motorcade would come through the city, all the cars were required to pull off to the side of the road, and everyone had to get out and stand in, in reverence uh, for him. And while this was a very poor country, his palace and um, his uh, multiple mansions throughout the country were, were lavish. Uh, when I met him, um, I was uh, 19. I was, uh, had come back to a very rural part of the Congo uh, to volunteer in a, in a mission, mission hospital in a remote uh, part of eastern Congo. Uh, there was another mission hospital, slightly larger but also remote, uh, that had been working on a hydroelectric project, putting in a dam, um, and it has ta had taken them about seven years. Now, this was not a big dam. It was maybe maybe 30 feet long, um, but it powered enough electricity to run the hospital and the mission station and uh, you know, a string of lights through the village. And that was a big deal in that very, very remote uh, part of, of Congo. Uh, to, uh, they had an opening celebration to celebrate uh, uh, the, the, the opening of, uh, of the hydroelectric plant. And because this was an in um, an area near Mobutu's ancestral home, uh, he decided to come out and participate in that celebration. And it was really an amazing um, production. Uh, first, there were these military helicopters that came down, and he had his guard that was assigned to protect him. They came out, fanned out, and um, you know, uh, cleared the perimeter. 
Then there was a helicopter that had his dancers, the Mobutu dancers. And they came and they had musicians, they danced and celebrated you know, to the praise of Mobutu. And then finally, after some time, the big man himself came and arrived. And, uh, and then anyone who wanted to meet him and shake his hand was allowed to line up. Well, there weren't that many of the rest of us. Um, so I got in line and I had the chance to, to meet him and to shake his hand. Uh, even in his 50s, uh, President Mobutu was a, a physically imposing figure, one of the wealthiest men in the world at the time. He had wielded absolute power over his country for almost two decades. His devotees revered him as the African Messiah, and his rivals feared him with the utmost dread. Though perhaps not as savage as Idi Amin from Uganda, Mobutu was no less ruthless and thorough in dealing with his enemies. When I shook his hand, though, it was the hand of an ordinary man. No evil exuded from his pores. No aura enveloped his presence. He was a man and no more. Herod Antipas the Tetrarch went by the title of king, but he was a regional ruler under the authority of Rome. He lived in fear of his political rivals, his Roman overlords, and the Jewish people he ruled. The Jews, the Jews tolerated him out of necessity, but they never accepted him as their rightful king. Their religious devotion and penchant for rebellion made his situation even more precarious. Like Mobutu, he had the power and the wealth, but if you were to meet him, you would have seen that he was an ordinary man. In sharp contrast is John the Baptist. John the Baptist's mission is stated in the first few verses of the Gospel of Mark. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. This is actually a conglomeration of a prophecy in Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3 a voice cries in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord make straight in the desert a highway for our God and another prophecy from the book of Malachi the last book of the Old Testament Malachi chapter 3 verse 1 behold I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me the gospel of John puts it slightly differently uh, but more concisely there was a man sent from God whose name was John he came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. John's life and his mission were all about preparing the way for the Lord, preparing the way for Jesus. Now, his appearance was pretty unconventional. He was a rough-looking character. Uh, Mark's gospel puts it this way. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. Now that description of a man who doesn't even have proper clothes or proper food to eat is really designed to evoke or to hyperlink back to the prophet Elijah in the Old Testament who is dressed in a similar way and also uh, depended on God for his daily sustenance. This connection or relationship between John the Baptist and the prophet Elijah began even before John was born. When the angel Gabriel came to 
John's father, Zechariah, to tell him he was going to have a son in a miraculous way because his wife was past the age of childbearing. He says to Zechariah, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son. You shall call his name John and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord and he must not drink wine or strong drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the for the Lord a people prepared this was uh, really a direct allusion to another prophecy in the book of Malachi. Malachi chapter 4, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So this prophecy about Elijah coming before is probably what prompted in this gospel reading that we had, uh, the conjecture that maybe Jesus uh, was Elijah, the Elijah that was to come. Now, when Jesus was asked about Elijah by his disciples in Mark chapter 9, he says, they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Jesus said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things and how it is written, and how is it written that the Son of Man, that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did do him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. He's talking about John the Baptist there. In Matthew chapter 11, he makes it even more explicit. Uh, and if you're willing to accept it, he, John, is the Elijah who is to come. Now, that would seem to settle it. Uh, John the Baptist was... Uh, the fulfillment of this prophecy about Elijah coming, except when they ask John straight out, uh, are you Elijah? Uh, he says, I'm not. So um, either John didn't get the memo or there's something more to this. And I think there really is something more to this. I think John the Baptist was a partial fulfillment of Elijah coming to prepare the way, but there's still an additional fulfillment to come. When we were looking in the book of Revelation earlier this summer, one of the uh, passages uh, in Revelation 11 talks about two witnesses, and these uh, two witnesses uh, were given uh, authority uh, to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying, and they have the power over waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. So there's two powers here. One was what Elijah did. He, um, he uh, shut the sky so no rain fell. And then the other is what Moses did, uh, which was to, uh, to turn waters into blood and strike the earth with plagues. And so there's these two witnesses who are to come, uh, one in the pattern of Elijah, one in the pattern of, of Moses. Uh, what was John's place then in the kingdom? Um, in some ways, he appears to be a tragic figure. Um, he has a, a ministry that's relatively short, then he's imprisoned, and then he's uh, unceremoniously uh, killed. Uh, this is what Jesus had to, had to say about John. 
What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. Maybe a contrast here with Herod. What then did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you that among those born of women there, is no, there, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Uh, this man who was unconventional in his appearance and um, unusual in his message uh, was in the eyes of Jesus uh, the greatest. What was John's political significance? Well, maybe the best way to describe it is to look at our Old Testament reading uh, in the book of Amos, uh, chapter 7. Uh, Amaziah, the priest, says to Amos, O seer, go, flee away to the land of Judah, and eat bread there and prophesy there, but never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary and is a temple of the kingdom. Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I am no prophet, nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock. The Lord said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. Amos was not part of the religious or political establishment. Neither was John. Like Amos before him, John the Baptist was outside the religious and political system of his day. Because he wasn't part of the system, he was free to critique it. That made him dangerous to those in charge. Some key contrasts between John the Baptist and Herod Antipas. Uh, they differed in their source of protection, their source of provision, and their source of purpose. Herod depended on himself and his uh, Roman allies for his protection, uh, definitely shaky sources. Uh, because of that, he was a fearful man. In this passage, he's afraid of John's words, so he has him imprisoned. Then he's afraid of John himself, as well as the people, so he keeps him alive. And then in this scene, this birthday celebration, he's afraid of his guests, so he gives in to Herodias and to her daughter. And finally, when he hears about Jesus, he's afraid again, because it seems like this is the reappearance of John, John the Baptist. In contrast, John was fearless, as if he had nothing to lose, because he depended on God for his protection. He was fearless in what he said to the religious leaders of his day. He was fearless in what he said to the political leaders of his day. Um, he was even pretty fearless when it came to Jesus. When he's in prison, he sends a message to Jesus. Look, buddy, are you the guy or should we wait for someone else? Um, Jesus answers his question uh, uh, without judgment or, or, or offense but uh, John was a guy who, who lived without fear. Uh, these two men differed in their source of provision. Um, Herod was defined by his wealth. Uh, John, on the other hand, was defined by his total dependence on God. John possessed nothing, no home, no wealth, not even any proper clothing. He lived off the land like Elijah and Moses in the wilderness. He depended on God for his very sustenance. Because he had nothing, there was nothing for Herod to take away. Uh, imprisonment was really an extension of John's wilderness existence. Herod un unintentionally took 
the bright light of John's life and ministry and turned it into a laser. John's remembered as a saint, and Herod is only remembered for having taken his life. Lastly, they differed in their source of purpose. Herod actually had no guiding principles. That's why he wavered. Uh, he was off and on in his uh, relationship, interaction with John the Baptist. He has him in prison, and then he likes to listen to what he has to say. You know, he wants to protect him, and then he has him beheaded, and then he regrets it. And he was the same with Jesus. He wanted to see him, but then he tries to kill him. You know, he, uh, he's glad to listen to him, uh, but then treats him with contempt. Um, Herod wavered because he had no guiding principles. He and his family were of that social class where whimsy and anger could lead to the suffering and death of innocence. John's imprisonment may have been politically strategic, but his death resulted from the impulsive acquiescence to a young girl's gruesome and inappropriate request. While Herod's guests were entertained and his wife's morbid appetite for vengeance sated, a righteous and holy man was unjustly murdered. John, on the other hand, was steadfast in fulfilling his clear calling and purpose, uh, which he knew really from his uh, earliest days. Uh, John saw what no one else could see. While others saw a carpenter, the son of Mary, John the Baptist saw the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He had the singular focus and clarity of purpose that comes from living in the wilderness, free from the pleasures, the passions, the pursuits and machinations of this world. We also need some wilderness in our lives, space that's free from distraction so we can listen to what God is saying and see what he's doing in our lives and in this world. We need vision and clarity of purpose. Why was this story inserted here? It's a little bit odd in the Gospel of Mark. It starts out with Jesus sending out his 12, uh, and then, um, then there's this story, and then they all come back and they report back to Jesus. It's an, odd, it's an odd timing, it seems. But actually, I think there's a purpose for it. Um, Herod realized his efforts to silence John had ultimately been unsuccessful. Even in death, the Baptist spoke, and the message of the true kingdom was now punctuated with the powerful words and miraculous deeds of Jesus. Those words and deeds were spreading even more widely through the mission of the Twelve. What the tyrant had most feared was now coming to pass. John the Baptist had indeed risen from the dead, in a sense. The reason for inserting the story of John's death here, sandwiched between the sending of the Twelve and the report of their mission, is to remind the reader that not even death can silence the message of the kingdom, nor prevent its spread. What John announced and Jesus initiated would be carried on by the twelve and later on by others. We're part of that unbroken chain. I'm going to leave you with two questions for consideration. The first is, who is the tragic figure in this story? Is it John the Baptist or is it Herod? In this season, I can identify with John the Baptist in a particular way. John's life and ministry was about preparing the way for another. In the words of John the Baptist himself, he must increase, but I must decrease. And my role here as an interim pastor at Trinity Northside Parish, I'm here to prepare the way for another, for our incoming pastor, John Ziegler. It will be a good and natural thing to transfer leadership to him because that's why I accepted this position in the first place. 
John understood his role as pointing to Christ and preparing the way for him. It was a good and natural thing for him to step out of the way when his work was finished. Our lives also are to be about pointing the way to Jesus. Through the work of the Holy Spirit, the life of Christ is manifest in those who trust in him. Together, collectively, we're called the body of Christ. Our purpose is to glorify God and embody Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. He must increase, but we must de decrease. My final question is, who looks more like your picture of success? Is it John the Baptist or is it Herod? We do what we do because we believe what we believe. Because imprisonment and death are not what we believe to be success, we're afraid to speak out. It's fear of giving offense that so often keeps us silent. But in a sense, we are all called to prepare the way of the Lord. We do this by giving testimony to the good news about Jesus in our lives, in our work, in our relationships with others. We also do this by working to advance the kingdom of God as we promote righteousness and justice and oppose evil and injustice in this world. Our lives should call others to repentance as they see the kingdom of God is indeed near. Amen. Amen. Please stand as you're able as we read together the words of the Nicene Creed. <clears throat> 